Hello everybody, you are listening to the podcast that is called Russia-Ukraine War Decoded. I am a journalist Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. I conduct audio discussions with experts from different Western countries. We talk about various aspects of the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, but also about security in Europe. Today I have another guest from Ukraine. His name is Petro Burkovsky. He is a political scientist and sociologist from capital Kyiv and also an executive director of the prominent local foundation, the Democratic Initiatives. This foundation conducts sociological surveys of the public opinion in Ukraine on democracy-related topics. The foundation is named after its late founder, Ilko Kucherev, whom I personally knew very well and much appreciated. Today with Petro Burkovsky we will talk about how Ukraine resists the Russian invasion, what Poles say about it and what Ukrainians think about this support and news coverage from the West. Petro, welcome to my podcast and my first question to you is about the first days of the war. How did it start for you and your family? Personally, for me, the day of invasion was very unusual because at that moment I was abroad. I uh, lived uh, and worked in Qatar for more than two months. Now I come to the day of invasion. Two days before, when Putin held uh, this Security Council meeting, when uh, all of the top, uh, his Russian uh, accomplices were criminals right now, They were addressing and they were saying their opinion on what should be done and whether Russia should so-called recognize their puppet regimes in uh, uh, the occupied territories of Donetsk and Lugansk regions. And at that moment, I realized that it will happen. I do thought that uh, the war will happen even before that. I can only say that on February 11, I gave an interview to the Swedish top newspaper Dagens Nyheter, and it was published on February 11, and they presented my youth that the expert in Ukraine said that uh, the war in Zep is inevitable and Putin has made the decision to invade. So, but uh, on February 22, I was striken. I did understand that it will happen and maybe it will happen tomorrow. It's like uh, you see the storm, the hurricane coming to you and uh, you cannot stop it, you cannot prevent it and you cannot run away. You just have to accept it and do what is proper. Before I left to Qatar, I hesitated a lot. I didn't want to leave because I said that I will be in Qatar and you'll you'll be here, my family and uh, wife and two children. So I've called my family in Ukraine. On February 22, I said that you better leave Kiev. And so we agreed, in case of invasion, what road they would choose. Because Russians would try to strike Kiev. And that day I worked for 20 hours. So it was a very long day. What motivates the Ukrainians to fight and defend their country? Can we get an idea about it from the results of the sociological surveys done by your foundation? Before the war, at Democratic Initiatives Foundation, we conducted a number of polls and we saw that uh, the Ukrainian society was getting more and more consolidated and mobilized. It was uh, remarkable how far people would go and uh, how strong they are facing this threat. In the end of December, around 9% of Ukrainians, they said that they are going to join irregular uh, forces, uh, like volunteer forces. Around 14% of 
and they polled nationwide. They said they are going to join regular forces. That means that uh, up to 23% of the people were ready to join army, whether volunteer units or regular units. It's a huge number. And it was obvious to all of the people that it would be a kind of underdog fight, that Ukraine is an underdog in this fight. But despite the recognition of this fact that uh, Russia is much stronger in terms of military power, firepower, economic power, a lot of people are so determined to fight against invasion that it gave us a very strong sense of hope that it won't be at all an easy walk for the Russian troops. Moreover, in January, when we met and presented these and other results that showed a great strength of Ukrainian society, a great readiness to sacrifice, even despite the all odds, to sacrifice their lives, their material welfare for the sake of defending the country and defending the family, and we met with a number of embassies and ambassadors. I can mention a Canadian, German, and French ambassadors or high embassy, I'd say, staff. We also met with all representatives of all uh, European Union members uh, on the premises of uh, EU delegation in Ukraine. Like uh, more than 30 people were sitting in the room. And together with other experts, some of them presented the military uh, aspects of defense. I presented the social resilience aspects. In many cases, whether it were personal meetings with ambassadors or big meeting with uh, EU members, uh, they were asked the question, so what will happen if Russians attack Kyiv? How long Ukraine will will stand. And for me, as the political scientist, the plan to take Kiev seems quite strange. And I explained why to the Europeans. I said that Kiev is a best place of two incredible popular movements, of two Maidans. People in the city of Kiev are highly motivated. Two times they repelled attempts of authoritarian coup d'etat. And in case of attack, people would be mobilized. And uh, the Kiev is too big to be taken very easily. And the population would be very hostile toward invaders. A lot of volunteers would join to fight, whether actively joining uh, military units or uh, as a volunteers helping or providing a shelter, food, whatever is needed to the troops. So uh, it, it sounded that trying to take Kiev as a primary target to the war, it sounded not very prudent, not very reasonable. But uh, all our information explanation why it's not a good plan for Russians, that was perceived with the, let's say, big share of skepticism by the Europeans. I'm just going to say that uh, it appeared that uh, we were right in our analysis and uh, the Western analysis proved to be wrong, that Kiev would uh, fall in a number of hours or a number of days. Uh, still, we don't know what were the main uh, reasons for uh, this kind of Russian failure or our success in the Kiev. But uh, in my opinion, one of the key elements of Ukrainian success was this uh, kind of uh, high preparedness, high civic motivation and uh, high uh, civic uh, and national consciousness of the people who decided to withstand and to defend capital and the country in the very first moments of the war. And moreover, the more evidence arrive about the resistance, the more I'm confident in my previous estimates of the resilience and of the civic awareness. For instance, right now you can find videos of the journalists working in the Sumo region. This is the northeastern part of Ukraine one of the regions was, which also was invaded in the very first day. So what local people are saying about the first days of invasion? 
They said in the very first day of the invasion, all security service uh, officers and most of the police officers, they just fled the city of Sumy. They just left. So you can imagine people who were trained to protect civilians, who actually had a combat experience because they were a former servicemen and they are law enforcement and security service, they left the city. And the main burden of defending Sumer was laid on common citizens. And so they self-organized themselves. They came to uh, the uh, police officers who stayed in the city and they were given arms and they started to defend the city of Sumer together with Ukrainian army units. And they were successful. It was so unexpected, and they demonstrated a so high level of defense, and it was so unexpected to Russians that uh, Russians entered the city and then left the city because of this resistance. And that's how the city of Sumy was saved, without a regular uh, law enforcement and security service officers, just by common people, uh, common people, volunteers. Some of them were sure that war is coming, some of them not, but nevertheless, all of them uh, defended their own city, their own community. And they saw that Defending their own community means defending their own country, and that becomes the same for them. It is not a secret that the enormous resistance of Ukrainians inspires many people in America where I live. For example, my neighbors asked me about, can the Ukrainian military collapse the same quickly as Afghanistan military fell to the Taliban? I assured them that it won't happen. And we all saw that. In particular, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and his team of government officials didn't abandon Ukraine. At the same time, there are accusations from some politicians in the US that the office of Zelensky was given intelligence and warnings, but didn't properly prepare the country. Your opinion, Petro, why did so many people expect the catastrophe, but it turned out that Ukraine fights above and beyond any expectations? I think that actually this war is the result of miscalculations. So Russians miscalculated about Ukraine and the Western response. West miscalculated about Russian intentions and our resilience. But I think the most important thing is that we miscalculated also about scale of the Russian, I don't want to say madness, but maybe of Russian arrogance, Russian plans to conquer Ukraine. And we also miscalculated about our Western allies. And now I will give the explanation. So yes, the West provided the intelligence, but when government of Zelensky and then Ukrainian experts said that in order to prevent the invasion, we need preventive sanctions and very strong preventive sanctions. And second, we need uh, not uh, javelins, but more tangible things like what now arrives to Ukraine. In the first days of invasion, we also asked for the no-fly zone. But actually, it also means that uh, we needed the modern anti-aircraft and anti-missile defense systems. So nothing of this was provided before the war. So if you give the intelligence, please give us the means to defend our country. Uh, yes, I think that uh, Ukraine was not given this kind of sophisticated lethal equipment because uh, according to intelligence assessments, Ukraine should have fallen in the very first days of the war. So in this respect, I think that Putin had an upper hand in his uh, relations with the West. Since 2013, Putin, like Hitler in the last century, he communicated with the West with kind of a bluff and bet. So as you know, Hitler won in the 1990s. 
1938-39 due to his bluffs and bets with the West. That was described by French sociologist Raymond Aron. I think the same has been done by Putin. So since 2013, Putin made a bet openly and he communicated his bet to the West that he betted on the thing that Ukraine as a state would fail because of the internal problems, political problems, the economic problems, that the soon Ukraine will collapse and that Ukraine inevitably would fall into the exclusive sphere of interests of the Russia. So Putin communicated to the West, you should not invest in Ukraine because uh, it would be a lost investment and a lost assistance because anyway, Ukraine will be mine because of corruption, because of uh, economic underdevelopment, because uh, the society is divided. There are many people who want to live in Russia and so on and so forth. All of these Russianers, that was the bet. And the bluff, the second bluff, it's very important. So from 2014, Putin bluffed that I am capable of destroying Ukraine before you can supply Ukraine with the weapons and before Ukraine would use them against me. So that means, so don't supply weapons to Ukraine because anyway, I will win, I will prevail and I will punish you for what you tried to interfere into my sphere of influence. And if you go back to the 2015 and read very carefully what French President Francois Hollande said, what uh, Angela Merkel said, they actually, they bought this Putin's bluff. They believed that they cannot help Ukraine enough and uh, Ukraine cannot resist Russian power and Russian might and Ukraine should bow to the Russian pressure and should accept the Minsk agreements. And right now, Putin uh, continued his bluff that he can destroy Ukraine before Ukraine will be too strong to defend itself. Right now, what we are seeing is that Putin is losing his bluff. Now, even the Western governments see that more weapons came to Ukraine, the less chances Putin uh, has to prevail. This conclusion arrived at a very high price for Ukraine. Also, collateral damage. Collateral damage is the Ukrainian trust in the West. In the United States, uh, especially in Germany, Germany would never restore its soft power. Germany had a very big soft power in Ukraine. Now its soft power is in ruins. And now it's an open question whether the West would allow Ukraine to win the war and to restore territorial integrity, because it also seems that the moment Ukrainian troops approach Crimea, then there will be pressure from the West to stop and not to invade Crimea, because the West would be afraid of a nuclear conflict with Russia. And Russia will try to use the nuclear blackmail in order to keep uh, occupied Crimea. So there are many questions and very few answers. We also see that Europe is divided in respect to the energy security, in respect to the uh, harsh sanctions against Russia. And still, they think that at some time in the future, relations with Russia could be restored. Although the, our research is showing that it's just unbelievable that in uh, any uh, next four or five decades, relations between Ukraine and Russia would be restored unless Russia recognizes all the crimes committed and would recognize it in a way how Germany recognized its crimes made during the Second World War. My next question is about political messaging and narratives, because you work with them as well as a political analyst. Recently, I read several opinions of Western experts that Ukraine is starting to win the information war and Russian propaganda is not as effective as before. 
I am more cautious and won't say that Ukraine definitely achieved informational successes, especially abroad. A lot of things to be done in this regard. What is your opinion from inside Ukraine? Are you winning the information war or not yet? Uh, a good question. First, I think that Ukraine definitely was winning informational war in the first months of the war because of the mere fact that Russia was so arrogant and so confident in the quick victory. And in the first months of the war, until the beginning of April, they were saying about success while Ukraine was not falling. Therefore, the successful defense gave Ukraine more credibility in the eyes of the Western audience, that even skeptics and opponents of Ukraine had to concede that Ukraine much stronger than it appeared, and uh, that the Ukrainian point of view should be respected and should be listened to. Another argument on the Russian side is that the Russian army is bigger. Uh, Russia is bigger itself. Russia has more resources economic, while uh, Ukrainian uh, economy is in a very bad shape. And this argument that Russia is much bigger, it means that it can prevail in the longer conflict, is very appealing because it seems to be uh, based on the facts. However, when I tried to explain why Russia cannot prevail and why I tried to explain it uh, in Qatar to the Arabic audience, I just said and Compare the uh, share of Russia in global GDP and share of, of Ukrainian allies in global GDP. It's like 3% and 20%. So you can imagine who will prevail. So Ukraine is not alone in this fight. Ukraine is uh, backed by the European Union and NATO and the United States. Right now, the conflict is in a stage when Ukraine will not be left alone. So the question is uh, when conflict stops. And Russia wants to create a perception that it will not stop the conflict until it uh, destroys Ukraine, that the uh, cost of the war would be too intolerable and too high for the West. I can tell you that Ukraine can survive. And our opinion polls uh, this year, we conducted two opinion polls in May in Western and Central Ukraine. And we also conducted polls uh, this August uh, in all regions, except frontline areas and occupied areas. What we see is that society is highly mobilized and the majority of the people say that they are ready to sacrifice their material, their welfare for the sake of uh, defense of the country. So uh, I can be pretty confident in the Ukrainian people. But at the same time, we don't know what are in the minds of the uh, European government, what kind of sacrifices uh, they are going to make. We are pretty sure that the Baltic countries, Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, uh, Romania, these countries are ready to help Ukraine. But we don't know what would be the position of the new Italian government after elections. Uh, we still uh, see that the so traffic light government in Germany is divided. And the parties in Germany, they are also divided. We see that France is also looking for many ways to stop the war, even if Ukrainian territories are occupied. And they are looking for many ways for, for diplomatic solution. So yes, we have doubts about key governments in Europe. At the same time, I would tell you what Putin doesn't have, what Ukraine has. 
Unlike Putin, who is now viewed by common European people as a war criminal, as a person who ordered killings and mass deportations of people, uh, more and more common Europeans, people from different European countries, they see horrible things. And uh, for them, for educated people, these are reminiscent of the Second World War, of what Nazis were doing in their countries. So these common people, they trust a Ukrainian president. So Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky, in many countries, he's more popular than the local politicians. And uh, he has this credibility as a leader, an unexpected brave person, a very young person. So he is not politician. He also has no political background. And he can talk very strong and very unpleasant things very straightforwardly. And that is appealing to the common people in Europe. And I think that uh, as far as Ukrainian president has this trust in many European societies, Ukraine can prevail because it can present uh, its opinion, its description of the situation on the ground. It can argue why Ukraine is right in this war and why Russia is wrong. And Ukraine doesn't need to use lies or fakes or propaganda. You just have to present the facts of the Russian war crimes. This is so disturbing for many good people in Europe that I think that they will not allow their governments to leave Ukraine alone. I would like to ask you the same question that I recently received from my fellow American journalists. They asked me how the Western media cover Ukraine during this war with Russia. I replied that now the news coverage is somehow better than it was during the first invasion in 2014-15 when they called the Russian invasion just a conflict of Kiev with rebels on the east. Also, eight years ago the Western media presented the Moscow propaganda as an alternative position to balance their journalistic articles. Today, at least, there is greater understanding that Ukraine is a victim of Russia. What is your opinion about the news coverage? I also began my career as a journalist and observer in a business magazine. So I can understand the logic, for instance, of uh, Thomson Reuters, who are interested in working in Russia. So I think that many Western media, not all of them, but many, they're still interested in having presence inside Russia. So therefore, you have to make a compromise. Inevitably, if you want to report from Russia, then you have to respect, at least to respect the rules which are imposed by the Russian government. At the same time, you have to remain popular with the Western audience. And the audience is very demanding. So you cannot report as if Russia uh, hadn't committed war crimes. Well, so it's a hard choice for so-called gatekeepers and editors and the senior and top management of uh, the Western media. So how they will do this? Frankly speaking, I don't know what should Russia do more in order to persuade everybody that it's not possible to continue even this kind of sensitive approach toward Russia. In Mariupol, they killed hundreds of thousands of the people. Yes, you do not see the bodies and Russians are trying to destroy the evidence. But it doesn't matter. The uh, Associated Press uh, correspondents were in Mariupol when Russians committed these crimes and then they hit maternity hospital. Next, uh, Russians killed uh, 50 prisoners of war. They were just burned in a fire uh, like uh, heretics in the Middle Ages. They were live burned. It's a war crime. Prisoners of war were killed in a very severe and barbaric manner. 
What else uh, Western media want to see in order to cancel Russia? So what kind of crimes do you want to experience? Chemical attack? Nuclear attack? What are the boundaries of this intellectual and managerial flexibility? I understand the logic behind the actions of the Western media, but I cannot understand how they can explain it from the moral position. In 2014, it was a pain to see and hear that the Western media reported about Ukrainian crisis, a civilian war, Russian-backed rebels, insurgents, while it was a Russian attack. Uh, no one asked for apologize. No one. Neither Washington Post, New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, they just pretended that nothing happened and uh, this page is turned down. I think it's a good lesson. And so if you want to have a free press, so the free press cannot talk to dictators and war criminals. So if a person is a dictator and war criminal, do everything, even uh, in the media sphere, to depose or just to contain this leader and to help people to get rid of this leader. Because if you pretend that you are non-partisan, then you're just helping all of these horrible crimes uh, to continue and to go on and to go on. Petro, what do you think about the August article by the retired U.S. Colonel Alexander Windman in the Foreign Policy magazine, where he called to redesign the U.S. foreign policy into a Ukraine-centric instead of the Russia-centric? I read this article, and uh, I'm very grateful to, to Mr. Wildman and to all Americans uh, who try to raise their voice. What I can tell you, in the 90s, uh, there was also American scholar Sherman Garnett, Sherman Gunner, and he prepared a book on a keystone in the arch about Ukrainian security. And he wrote that when Russia became stronger, it will try to retake Ukraine. And one of the mechanisms to prevent the conflict, he said that there should be a triangle of relations, Russia, the United States and Ukraine. And the United States uh, should play as a kind of broker order to arrange a security agreement between Ukraine and Russia so that Ukraine would not become a country hostile to Russia and Russia would not endanger Ukrainian sovereignty and would respect the Ukrainian sovereignty. So this concept was not implemented and we see the consequences of this. So now it cannot be done. I think that uh, the West should recognize. So if the war goes longer, that means that the alienation and hatred would grow stronger and stronger. And that will mean that the more radical means of warfare will become possible from both sides. It would be even much more dangerous for European security. But if Ukraine can prevail faster in the war, it will show Russia the limits of its power, the limits of hard power projection in the neighborhood. If Russia is defeated this year or in the beginning of the next year, it will remain hostile toward the West and toward Ukraine, no doubt. But it will rely more on the deterrence than on the active expansion to protect its interests, right? But if, if the war continues, then Russia would be encouraged to become more aggressive, especially toward the West, because Russia would see that the problem is not about Ukrainian resistance, but about huge Western assistance to Ukraine. And Russia will try to stop this assistance by any means. And if the West really wants to avoid nuclear confrontation with Russia, it should help Ukraine to defeat Russia as soon as possible and to stop this war. I hope that in the beginning of September, the Rammstein meeting would show that there is a consensus to increase dramatically assistance to Ukraine and to prevent this very dangerous escalation and continuation of the war.
At this moment, I'm ending this episode of the podcast Russia-Ukraine War Decoded. I am Viktor Kovalenko from the United States, and my guest today was Petro Burkovsky from Ukraine, who is an executive director of the foundation called the Democratic Initiatives. Petro, thank you for coming to my podcast. Thank you for your work and for all you are doing to Ukraine and all you are doing to the United States. It's, we really appreciate it. Please support this Ukrainian podcast by donating to my PayPal so I could offer you more interesting audio discussions in the future. Besides donations to my PayPal, you can subscribe to small monthly contributions through the Anchor website. I say goodbye. So long.